Our text this morning is from Genesis 17, 1 through 14. You will find this passage on page 11 in the Bible in the chair in front of you. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout your generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'm really thankful a pediatrician was reading the circumcision passage, so um, we didn't plan that, but the God is good, so. Allow me to pray for us, and we'll look at this passage together. Father in heaven, we're all here today by your design. We're here because you desire us to be. I pray, Lord, that the words from this passage, the truths, would sink deep in our hearts that today we would know better your love for us and the call on our lives because of it. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, <clears throat> I want to start this sermon with a, a kind of unrolling a concept here. Um, I've reworded this thing like 50 times, so I hope I found the one that's going to make sense. Uh, listen, we tend to live our lives. We tend, everybody tends to live their life as if our actions manipulate the spiritual world. Okay, this is the concept. Let me explain. Uh, think about the world, for instance. Every religion, every religion except Christianity says, here's how you live, and if you live this way, this is how the deities or the gods, whatever they believe in, will react, how, how eternity will treat you. You see how humans in that context, in that philosophy, are manipulating what comes next. Even in secular philosophy, if you ever heard of the secret, this is an idea that you can think positively enough to manifest 
these things or draw positive things to you. So just by our action, our will, our thoughts, the world is saying you can control the cosmos. Uh, Christians, we cannot think that we're immune from this kind of thinking. We can't think we're immune from it. Think about this. How often do we live our lives thinking that our obedience or our disobedience changes how God feels about us? Or our obedience or our disobedience changes God's plan for us? Thankfully, thankfully, the Bible shows us a completely different truth, a completely different reality than that. First of all, the Bible shows us that we as humans are not that powerful. <laughs> Whew, okay, we're not that powerful. We cannot manipulate God through our actions. We can't. God has a plan. He does not plan on diverting from that plan. That's how it is. Secondly, human lives. According to the scriptures, we are called, our lives are called to actually bend around spiritual realities, not the other way around. This concept um, is important, I think, to understand today's passage. It's especially important as we apply the truths of this passage to our lives. Um, and so here, here's the concept. When, when God is our Lord, when God is our Lord, when Yahweh is our God through Jesus Christ, our spiritual reality is secure. It does not change. Do you hear that truth? When, when Jesus is Lord of our lives, our spiritual reality does not change. And in fact, instead of our behavior changing the spiritual reality, the spiritual reality ends up manifesting itself in our lives as, as change. Our lives change because of the spiritual truth, the spiritual security in Jesus Christ. The secure eternity that we are gifted by grace necessitates change in our lives. The relationship that God has designed us for. He's established us as his people. And so as we live in the world, it's not that we're changing our lives to become more of God's person than we were before. No, we change our lives. Why? Because we are already his people. We're already his people. That pattern, that truth unfolds in this passage here in Genesis 17. So what did we talk about last week? Genesis 15, uh, we had the, the, the cool sacrificing of animals and all that. But what happened? Instead of God asking Abram to walk through the animals and say, if you don't believe, you die. Instead, what happened? God moved between the pieces saying, if you fail, I pay. I'm making this promise to you, Abram. This promise is on me. And so here in this passage, Genesis 17, God is actually asking Abram to make some changes in his life. And it comes through four commandments that he gives him. Four commandments. Before we get into the commandments, let's ask the question, why is God giving these commandments? And you can see that in verse two. He says here, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Now let's talk about what some of these words mean. This word make means that I may uh, put my covenant in place. So um, I was trying to think of a good illustration, sometimes I'm bad at that, uh, but Joshua, I may butcher what you do for a living. It's like hardware and software, okay? Uh, the software in this case, again, I'm sorry, is the promise of God. 
all right? And what is God doing? He's saying, I'm going to build some hardware to install it. This, that's a terrible one. Forget all of that. God's making a promise, okay? God's making a promise, and he is guiding Abraham to fulfill that promise. It's not conditional. God is using Abraham to do, Abraham to do what? I'm going to have to switch to Abraham in a few minutes. You'll see here in the text. I'm trying to stick with it accurately. God is using Abram to do what? To separate out for himself a people. From the beginning of time, remember what happened. Genesis 3, the sin of Adam and Eve smashed the relationship between God and humankind. And so what has been God's number one priority from that point forward? To repair that break. So what did he do in the flood? It wasn't necessarily judgment as much as it was saving the world, saving his people from the murderous destruction of the line of Cain. What's he doing with Abram? He's saying to you, I'm going to make a great nation of you. And if you can see this in verses 7 and 8, twice he makes this, this unconditional promise to be God to you. And I will be their God. It's not conditional. He's saying, now let's get to work. Let's get you ready to receive my promises. So what's happening here? God is giving these commands to prepare Abram and his offspring to receive the promises of God in their hearts and in their lives. That's what he's doing. The first two of the four commandments are really aimed at that heart change. Let's take a look at them. Verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me. Let's stop there. That's the first command. Walk before me. These words mean God is commanding Abram to associate with him in close relationship. That's what he's saying. The, the, the wording here, the, the context is more of a day-to-day -day thing. We've seen so far when God comes to Abram and he's given these previous commandments, leave Ur, leave your family, do these things. There's large chunks of time in between. Here, God is moving back again, closer to what he had with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, this day-to-day -day relationship with his people. God desires daily interaction. We're designed for it, to be around God, to be with him forever. And so God is calling Abram and his offspring back into this kind of daily, regular relationship. Walk before me. Command number two, and be blameless, blameless. This word means to be free of guilt, not subject to blame. And so what is God doing? He's asking that those who have been made, uh, those who he has made this promise to be mindful of their purity. Mindful of their purity. Uh, you can see uh, this uh, um, most clearly, I think, in the Mosaic law coming up in, in Exodus. But uh, this idea of pure and impure is actually, uh, it has to do with, are you living like the rest of humanity? Are you living like God's people? So it really is about separating out God's people to be different, to be other than the world. And so what is he saying to Abram? Walk with me daily in relationship and, and put effort into your purity. He's, he's giving Abram those commands. The next two are aimed at more outward change. And so, again, we've seen this over and over, this physical sign of a spiritual reality. The first thing is a name change, verses 3 through 6. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, 
but your name shall be Abraham. So Abram meant exalted father. Abraham means what? The father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. The name change, although slight, what is it doing? It's redefining Abraham's existence. It's redefining his identity. What is his identity? In other words, you could have just changed his name to receiver of my promises. His name is the the end point, the target, the goal of God's promises for him. The moment you've all been waiting for, command number four. I know all of you are here today to to talk about circumcision, so we're just going to get right into it, okay? Look at verses 9 and 10. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Listen, um, we're not going to get gory. Um, most of us who need to know what this is know what it is. All right. But let's talk about what it means. What does it mean? What's the point of all this? It does a couple of things. First of all, this is an intimate reminder to Abram and Abraham and all of his offspring of God's call to be holy and clean. This is that be blameless thing. It's an intimate reminder of that. It also draws attention to the destination of God's promise, which is offspring, offspring. And so this mark that God is commanding them to put on themselves and on their offspring is two things. One, it's an awareness of the promise of making children. That's what the promise is. Verse 11, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. What is it? Out of you, Abraham is going, Abraham is going to come a multitude of nations through your offspring. And secondly, this is a mark on the children that are born, that God is fulfilling his promise. Look at verse 12. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or brought in with your money or a foreigner who is not your offspring. Every child is a gift. Every child, this new, every new generation is God fulfilling his promise to Abraham. It's all about the promise. It's all about the promise. And so what is the result of these actions in Abraham's life. The result is this promise guaranteed by God becomes and and continues to be worked out by God through his life. The promise came first and then the commands. In a sense, I think, and so does the apostle James, uh, he's much smarter than I am. Um, This is the Old Testament version of faith and works. Faith and works. Uh, The Apostle James, the brother of Jesus, describes it like this in James 2. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And then he goes to the source material. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? That's a story we haven't got to yet. You see, the faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. What is James saying? What is Genesis 17 demonstrating? That just saying you believe is not really belief. Saying you believe and that's it is not belief. Faith moves us. In fact, true belief, true faith is living as if the promises of God are true. Not just saying you think they are, 
living as if they're true. And so what is God doing? He's guiding Abraham. He's training Abraham to be the father of many nations. He's showing him what it looks like to live as if this promise that he has made is true. And indeed it is. And so what's happening in Genesis 17? God is not, he is not replacing an unconditional promise with a conditional one. That's not, doesn't make any sense to the story. God's not exchanging the covenant of grace of Abraham, I will do this thing, I will be your God with a a covenant of works. Okay, well now you have to do this for that to be true. What is God doing? He's providing Abraham with guidance and training to be a recipient of his unconditional promises. He's training him to receive his unconditional promises. Well, what in tarnation does this have to do with us? All right. Um, Here's a couple of things. With Abraham, faith does not move God. Last week, again, God took a blood oath. If you fail, I pay. And so Abraham's obedience in this case is not necessary for God to make or keep his promises. Faith in God's promises, it's the reverse. Faith in God's promises causes Abraham to move. You see, God gave comforting assurance to Abraham. This is what I will do. And that un, uh, unchanging promise gives Abraham this unshakable foundation on which he can reorient his whole life towards God's will. The promise shapes the life. And so if you go and, and take that truth and plug it into our lives, listen, Faith in God's promises causes us to move as well. We don't move God, he moves us. Jesus Christ, what has he done, church? He's accomplished our whole salvation, all of it, all of it. Not one molecule of our salvation, if you can measure it that way, is left up to us. He's done it, it's done. And that security, that accomplishment in the spiritual realm, that reality, what does it give us? It gives us an unshakable foundation on which we can reorient our lives and follow God. That's what it gives us. His work, his promise changes us. It moves us. The promises of God, what do they do? They necessitate change in our lives. Some of those changes will be sacrificial. Some of those changes will be painful, but always, always those changes are secured in the word of God. They're always in the context of his friendship, his love, his secure promises. A promise that is initiated, sustained, and guaranteed by the love of God, the grace of Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice how we're not part of the Trinity on that one. So where did Abraham live? He lived between the promise that was made and the fulfillment of it. We live in a similar situation. We live after the thing that has been done, completed, Jesus Christ born and and a perfect life and, and crucified and resurrected and ascended. We live after that and we live before his coming again. 
The start and the finish of our salvation is established by God. And guess what? We can't do anything to change those two things. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. What comfort is there in that? We can't uncrucify Christ. We can't change the fact that he's coming back for us. Those two things are set in stone. What a great comfort. In the meantime, in the meantime, God has a plan for us. God has a plan for us in the in-between. Not only does he want us to understand his grace and his love and his mercy and believe it, he also wants to use obedience to form us into a people a people he's designed us to be, a people he's already called us to be, a people in relationship with him, prepared to receive his promises. Do you see the connection? What a clear mission that is. What a clear mission that is. We have in our lives, in the in-between, we have the comfort of God's sure salvation undergirding us, and we have the clarity of God's commands calling us forward. That's the Christian life. And so we go back to the original concept. We tend to live our lives as if our actions manipulate the spiritual. We, again, I disobeyed today. Does God love me less? I obeyed a lot. More than that person, God must love me more. This is not how it works. As if obeying or disobeying manipulates God's plan for us. We often, at times, just as Westerners, what do we think? We can orchestrate better outcomes in our earthly lives just by living the way God wants us to. And, and listen, I want to say to myself and all the ways I think this way and to us together this morning, whether you're here online or here in person, listen, disaster waits on the other side of those kinds of wrong ideas. Disaster. Lord, if I live the way you want me to, my kids won't participate in destructive sin. That's not true. Lord, if I live the way you want me to, my marriage won't have any problems. That's not true. If I live the way you want me to, I won't be living pay paycheck to paycheck. I'll always have enough. That's not true. Or, or the, the less spiritual version. If I just work hard, I'll get ahead. If I'm a good person, usually by our own standard, right? That's the, we, we set the standard for good person. Things are just going to go well for me. Not true. Not true. That's not even a secure way of thinking. God is not moved or changed by our good or our bad behavior. We aren't that powerful. We aren't that powerful. We're not even that good. I'm not. We don't wield the power of the cosmos by our will. And the good news is we don't have to. We don't have to. We don't have to do that. It's the exact opposite. God accomplished work. It plays out in our daily lives. And here's the thing. God's made a promise to every human being. Believe in me and you will be saved. And because of God's grace, because of God's mercy, because of God's accomplished work, what are we called to do? We're called to bend our lives. We're called to, to believe and obey. This thing that God has already done, this thing that he has already accomplished guides us to believe and obey. So this destination of God's plan that's not going to change, it's not going to change. What does it do? It calls us to walk in relationship 
with him. And so we're called, all of us this morning, to embrace the truth. God loves us. Praise his name, he's made a clear path back to himself. And despite our failures, he's paid the way back. He's paid it. It's paid. And if we believe that is true, and it is, guess what happens? It causes change. And so Christian Church, thank goodness, <laughs> circumcision's now baptism. Woo, all right. Um, but what is that? What is it? It's God giving a secure promise. That's what baptism is. God giving a promise. It's a call to the faithful to bend our lives to spiritual realities. Since he's already claimed us as his people, there's comfort, there's clarity in living as if we actually are his people. Obeying him, being different, minding our purity, being his, we're his. And so church, this is our call. Our call is what? Not to earn God's love, we can't. Not to be good enough. We can't be. Not to manipulate the spiritual realm such that when we get to the end, we have earned all these things. We can't do that. Our call is to respond to our secure eternity in Jesus Christ. The reality is, living other than the world can be stressful. <laughs> it can be stressful. I don't know about you, but I know that there are times when the world and the things it offers and the things it says and the things that it has are enticing to me. Why? Because my heart is still in the process of being purified. But God knows this. God knows this about us. He knows our trials and our tribulations. He is training us. He is guiding us. He is forming us in this in-between And he's using his actions in the heavens to make change possible in our lives. Listen to the Apostle John from 1 John 2. There's comfort in this reality. This passage tells us what God knows and what he does about it. My little children, says John, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the payment of our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so we have an advocate in the in-between who has set in motion this plan, has secured the beginning and the end of this plan, who is now with us in the middle, guiding us, training us, preparing us to receive the sure promises of God. And so this morning, church, Christ is as present as this bread and as this wine. And what is he doing? He is advocating for us presently because of our sin. And here's the thing. The case he makes before God is not based on your behavior. Do you know what his case is? I have done it and they're with me. That's it. It's on his spiritual realities and his accomplishments, not our own. And so... Who should come forward this morning and eat and drink? 
This physical walk is much like the Christian walk. It is a physical representation of a spiritual reality. Nobody walks this aisle worthy. Nobody. Nobody walks this aisle because they've done it or they've accomplished some level of purity. That's not why we come. We come because we are sinners in need of the never-changing plan of God. That's why we come. So this morning, if you confess that to be true, if you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way, that he is your secure eternity, you've been baptized, you are welcomed with open arms by your advocate this morning. Not me. I'm with you on this one. Who should not come? If you are living your life in a way that does not recognize the spiritual truth that there is a savior, that you are in need of it, that it is free, that it is based on grace, it doesn't make sense to come forward, to, to make, take the physical act of a spiritual reality. If the spiritual reality we've described this morning isn't yours, the Bible says don't participate. Don't participate. And we'd invite you to do the same. We're gonna take a few moments here to pray. Oh, we did not have our confession of sin as we normally do this morning. We had a confession of faith instead. So please take these few moments, pray to the Lord, and take some time to confess your sins. I'll gather us back together with a prayer of blessing before we distribute. Father in heaven, I pray for a blessing on us this morning, the blessing of your unchanging nature, your unchanging character. We confess this morning that you are excellent forever. You are compassionate forever. You are understanding forever. You have mercy on us praise your name forever and you have secured our relationship with you to forever in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone and so father your steady character allows us to, to discover more and more of who you are every day without being worried about you changing changing directions changing your mind and so we can pray, as the Valley of Vision does, to raise us above the smiles and the frowns of this world. Father, may your eternal, steadfast love guide us to day-to-day -to -day change. May this supper move us in that direction. Guide us toward your promise. Forgive us our sin, for it is great. Bless this bread, this wine, this juice in this way. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.